Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 21st of August with me, Ian Welsh. We've been off for a couple of weeks and it's good to be back. A few days ago, I spoke with Miles McCarthy, Director for Implementation and E-Mobility at the Carbon Trust. We talked about some of the challenges for companies that have set tough net zero targets and what to look out for in the run-up to and aftermath of the rapidly looming COP26 meeting in Glasgow. Also coming up is a conversation between Innovation Forum's Toby Webb and our senior associate Peter Stanbury about the next steps for our action research project into smallholder farmer resilience. That's all to come, but first, some sustainable business news. publication of the latest report from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warning of irreversible and unprecedented change to the planet's climate and the real challenges in trying to hold warming at 1.5 Celsius has been all over the news. Among the sobering findings are that sea level rise is now impossible to avoid and even at a 1.5 Celsius pathway long-term sea level rises of 2 or even 3 metres are likely. Insight into the drastic action that's going to be required came in a leaked draft of a future IPCC report due for publication in early 2022. This says that overall greenhouse gas emissions must start to fall by 2025 and fossil fuel power plants must close within 10 years. The richest 10% of the world's population are the top emitters, responsible for up to 45% of emissions, 10 times that of the poorest 10%. And the top 1% accounts for 50% of aviation emissions. The leaked draft report says that restraint in heating and cooling homes will be necessary, air travel will need to be curtailed, and diets will need to change. It reaffirms that total emissions must halve in the next decade for the planet to stay within 1.5 Celsius and reach net zero by 2050. Financing of high-emitting sectors and investment in fossil fuels more generally will inevitably come under ever greater scrutiny. Immediately following the publication of the IPCC report, the New York State Pension Fund, the third largest US public pension fund, announced an immediate review of $640 million invested in shale oil and gas companies. The New York Fund has already divested itself of some coal assets and has pledged to restrict investment in others. Environmental commentators say that the fund's move is significant given its size, in total it's worth $268 billion, and ability to influence sectors in which it has investment. The New York Fund has a commitment to reach net zero for its energy investment portfolio by 2040. Certainly, many companies are setting ever stricter targets for emissions and carbon neutrality. One of the latest announcements was from discount food retailer Little for its UK operations, which will be carbon neutral by the end of 2022. Cuts in emissions from its own operations, scopes 1 and 2, are aligned with a global 1.5 Celsius pathway, with overall emissions cuts of 80% by 2030 with the 2019 base. To tackle the more challenging scope 3 supply chain emissions, representing 98% of all the company's emission footprint, Little will require its suppliers to commit to their own cuts following science-based targets by 2026. The company says it will work with suppliers and growers to develop carbon reduction plans. The coconut sector is one that has not had much attention on its sustainability, and to address this and reflect on the fact that coconut products are a significant ingredient in its own supply chain, chocolate business Barry Calibo, along with Nestle and Pro Forest, is developing a new scorecard-based system to drive improvements in the sector. Coconut supply chains contain many of the same risks as other agricultural commodities, including climate change impacts, ageing tree stocks and lack of incentives for farmers to improve practices in general. Barry Calibo intends to have the new Sustainable Coconut Supplier Scorecard and Sustainable Origins Assessment rolled out across all its coconut producers over the coming 18 months. The company was also part of the consortium that launched the Sustainable Coconut Charter in November 2020. Some major apparel sector companies are collaborating on a scheme to assess the potential for technology to increase supply chain transparency. 
Among the coordinators of the Sustainable Supply Chain Optimization Project are IBM and the UK Fashion and Textile Association. Retailers involved include Next, New Look and H&M. And the scheme will have a pilot trialling a tech platform involving blockchain and artificial intelligence to create a robust chain of information about materials and products at each stage of the supply chain. The aim is for more transparency on environmental impacts and labour rights across the value chain and for the ability to monitor potential disruption before it becomes a major challenge. The project will run for an initial period of nine months. The Innovation Forum team is working on our Autumn Conference programme. We're excited about our next Future of Plastics event on the 11th to 13th of October. Earlier this week, I spoke with Innovation Forum's Natasha Bodnar, the conference organiser, about how the three days are shaping up. Joining me is Natasha Bodnar, who's in charge of this year's Future of Plastics event. Welcome back to the podcast, Natasha. Thanks for having me in. It's been a little while. Always a pleasure. So just tell us, how is this year's event going to be structured? So this year we've decided to split the conference into three shortened days. This will make it easier for the audience to digest and for people to attend. It's more accessible across time zones. We've actually been getting a lot of people join from around the globe. So yeah, it should be a good few days. Excellent. And no doubt we'll have our usual networking sessions and opportunities for people to meet around the conference using the conference platform. We'll look forward to that. So what are the main themes for this year's event? The focus of the conference is obviously around how business can tackle plastics pollution. So within that, we're going to look at it through the key drivers for change, how businesses are responding to this, and finally, solutions and innovations that are practical and realistic for business to implement. Okay. And what are the positive trends that you spotted in terms of how business is tackling the plastic pollution issue? What have you spotted as you've been researching the event? I think what we're seeing more and more of are companies looking further into innovations and collaborating to tackle these issues, which I think is promising. And there's lots of new areas that are being investigated, which I think is great. Which participants are you particularly looking forward to hearing from? I'm looking forward to a couple of sessions, actually. There's one with Mondelez and the Body Shop, which they're going to discuss how they've gone about setting their credible targets, which I always think is interesting. And also there's a session looking at circularity and how to scale this with closed loop partners, Amcor and Unilever, which I think is a great lineup for that session. Sure. Circularity, obviously, one of the key issues in the plastics debate and probably the solution that we're going to have to get to if we are going to be removing plastics from the environment. So how can our listeners get involved, Natasha? As you mentioned before, throughout the three days and beyond, actually, there'll be various opportunities to engage and interact with the attendees throughout the conference. There'll be a prearranged meetings, speed networking, face-to-face workshops, networking groups. So if you're listening into the conference, you'll have lots of opportunity to get involved in various different ways. If you want to register for the conference, obviously, you can do so online. And currently, we have a discount deadline at the end of next week, which will save you £150. That's right. So the event is 11th to the 13th of October. And as Natasha just said, register by the 27th of August and you save on £150 on the 3D passes. Natasha, look forward to seeing you at the event, if not before. Thank you, Ian. See you then. Recently, I spoke with Miles McCarthy, Director of Implementation and E-Mobility at the Carbon Trust, about what he's looking out for at COP26 and evidence that companies are becoming more sophisticated in their approaches to tackling their climate challenges on the route to net zero. It's an exciting time at the moment, thinking around climate change. I mean, there's a lot happening. The climate crisis is progressing, but there are reasons for some hope with that COP26 rapidly approaching and ever more companies and organisations setting challenging net zero targets in tight 
timeframes. So to set the scene a little, Miles, what are the standout climate challenges for you right now? Certainly things are moving at quite a pace and we're seeing a huge amount of commentary from companies and countries, sectors as well, looking at what the implications are and the rates at which change needs to happen and the rate at which alternative cleaner technologies need to come into all aspects of global economies. Certainly from a business side, we've moved from a small number of companies or even lots of companies making smaller commitments to actually seeing really significant step change targets being set. And the challenges will now be how the underlying frameworks help those companies and those sectors to really make those transitions and whether the technologies and the drive for change, whether it be looking at raw materials, whether it be looking at power supplies, transportation and the drivers to make those transitions support those reduction trajectories that are being set. So lots and lots of commitments, but the next real challenge is making it happen and making progress. That's the key overlying challenge. It's actually really starting to see significant progress being made at a pace that's required to make those curves. There is a sense of universality emerging, isn't there? This is something that everybody's getting involved in rather than just the kind of outliers that perhaps there was in the past. So let's take a little bit of COP26. What are the kind of big picture outcomes that you're hoping to see? In terms of strengthening commitments, obviously that's going to be the most important. And I think there's been a lot of good progress being made in the last year or so. We've seen US making significant movements forwards. We've seen here in the UK further significant ambitions being set. Overall, seeing those targets being crystallised and moving forwards, I think does set a really important framework. There's some big issues, though, that will need to be worked through, carbon markets and how the overall emission reductions can be achieved across wide-ranging economies, sectors and technologies as well. And of course, there's lots of interests within that to push the direction in one direction or the other. But fundamentally, it's important that the scale of reduction and the pace of reduction is achieved and changes are pulling in the right direction. And everything that's being implemented and crystallised is actually pulling in the correct direction and, and making reductions as is expected. And I think there's a lot of conversation on that area as well. People are starting to challenge the end-to-end impacts of changing technologies or changing commercial models. That's a good thing. That's a good thing to open the bonnet and say, what are we actually doing here? What is the impact of some of these changes? And are they all doing the right thing? Are they all achieving the goal? Or are we making one step forward and two steps back? It's really having those conversations at a significant scale and recognising that with the rate at which we have to decarbonize, we've got to get things right and we've got to move all in the same direction. I think there's a lot of hands up saying we want to play this game and participate, but it's now getting the practicalities of moving forwards in a collective group at the right speed in operation, which is going to be the real challenge. Are there some details that we should look for from COP26? In some respects, we could write the high-level community right now, but what are the kind of small details that we should be looking for from the COP26 meeting that you think would be an indication that things are really moving in the right direction at the right pace, as you say? My work is focused a lot more with corporates and corporate commitments and also corporate roadmaps and working across their value chains, working with their wider stakeholders, customers, investors and suppliers to move forward technology providers. But of course, they're operating alongside country commitments and the global commitments in that respect. For me, from the corporate side, is really some areas where 
there's a need to develop some further robustness around what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what do various targets and achieving targets really mean. So we've seen huge progress and success from science-based targets being set by companies. We have you know, nearly 2,000 companies now globally that are committed to SBTI. We're seeing a lot of companies like countries setting net zero ambitions as well. But there's a lot of detail that's actually quite important around how do you achieve that and what does that mean? So I think we're going to be seeing some clarifications around how different measures can be appropriately assessed and measured, including areas such as offsets and negative technologies and what we call nature-based solutions that a lot of markets are looking to develop. How do we evaluate solutions in those spaces that can deliver credible benefits and can be used as part of a package of measures that can realistically be claimed to decarbonize a sector, a product, a service, or whatever you might be looking at. I think that's the area where there's a lot of chat now and there's a lot of noise. There's been some consultation, but we need some formalization of the frameworks that are appropriate. And there will be a lot of challenge and there will be a lot of people making positive claims, but then finding that actually they're getting more negative challenge to their claims or to their plans than they anticipated. And that's a good thing because that allows discussion and challenge to be made to say, are we doing the right thing? Is this moving us in the right direction? A lot of unintended consequences will come into play as well as, as these things play out. So then let's think a bit more about how companies are engaging then. What extent have you seen that companies becoming more sophisticated when it comes to engaging with their own climate challenges? Certainly, we've seen a lot of progress around target setting. We've seen the requirement really to move beyond one's own boundaries and actually look at the whole value chain, which is completely the right thing to do. For most companies, the scale of emissions within their value chain and even within their supply chain upstream is typically much greater than their own emissions. So it's important that that whole value chain is looked at. And that then brings along, once you've looked at that, measured that, and and maybe set a target around that, you then need to make some progress in reducing that or look at how you change your value chain, your products, your suppliers to reduce the end-to-end impact of your products and services. And that then opens up a great box of cross-working and integration and discussion to support each other along the value chain. Companies are working extensively now with their key suppliers They're looking at their customers' use of their products and saying, actually, how can we do things differently that actually moves forwards and moves forwards significantly? That opportunity to gain much larger benefits from working along the supply chain wasn't something that was, I don't think, in play in in almost any sector just a few years ago. But that's becoming the norm. And the great thing, of course, is that companies are finding that when they speak to their suppliers upstream or their customers downstream, Often those stakeholders are already making progress themselves and they're welcoming the cross-working to try and address the challenges. What are the tools then that have helped companies do this level of engagement with suppliers and with customers? Well, I think the first one was tools around helping to measure and evaluate the emissions outside of one's own activities. Traditionally, companies have measured what we call their scope one, scope two emissions, the emissions that relate to the energy used or other future emissions from their own operations. That's step one. But actually, the norm now and the processes now that companies are going through is to quite quickly make an evaluation of the larger, typically, emissions outside of their own operations and start to quantify those and start to focus on the areas where there are larger areas of impact that they can then reduce. 
and then starting to then develop a plan of how you're going to go about managing that. A lot of the innovation in terms of moving that forwards is actually within the organization itself, actually sitting down with, for example, your buyers and saying who are responsible for all of your supply chain and saying, actually, we need to think about what we're buying, where we're buying it from. We need to talk to our suppliers, not as a customer, but as a partner, perhaps, And we may even need to switch from using that type of supply or that type of raw material or input to something very different. That's actually a really interesting dynamic to see that that big part of a business who typically are focused on cost reduction or looking at quality actually now need to really think about the environmental impact of what they are buying and selling and also maybe moving from a commodity-based short-term relationship with suppliers to perhaps a longer-term, more focused relationship that really looks at more details around that supply chain and perhaps even further up the supply chain to say, well, what is it we're actually supplying here and what components are we putting into our product that And what are the implications of those components? A good example is the car industry, which is seeing huge evolution with the emergence of electrification of transport. One of the key areas of challenge, of course, is the emissions related to the use of vehicles, whether they're consuming petrol, diesel or electricity. But then the bigger question, the area that the industry is getting challenged on is where are these vehicles being manufactured? What are the components of these vehicles? There's lots of, for example, battery going into these. What's the supply chain look like for those batteries? What energies and emissions are related to that? And of course, finally, how is the product being recycled and the materials being reused at the end of its life? That's a whole end-to-end evaluation and business modeling of actually making that work appropriately in a decarbonized world. But it's completely obvious and logical to have that breadth of view and to plan your business and your whole value chain around that. It's interesting to see if those buyer-supplier relationships, how, how they change, particularly if there's a kind of critical mass of buyers beginning to demand of suppliers, well, here's what we need you to do. Once the supplier is being, being asked by all their customers to really change the way that they do their business, that then I think is a, a tipping point where then may then occur where it, there's a really significant difference made. Science-based targets, the growth of, of, of science-based targets has been a real feature of the past few years. It's still fairly early days, of course, but do you think that they are living up to the expectation? Because this has been the route that so many companies have gone down in terms of how we're going to solve these problems. I think they've offered a very important step forward, and that has been to move from a few years ago, a positive being we're doing something good and we're reducing, to we're now doing something good or planning to do something good, and we're reducing at a pace that's appropriate to what's required. We're not just walking to our destination, but we're moving at a speed that will get us there in time. That's a really important part. Of course, that rate at which you've got to make progress is getting faster and faster. The curve is getting steeper and steeper as we take longer and longer to start making that progress. So that's, I think, a really important step. And we've seen a huge amount of commitment to science-based targets. We've seen a stepping up of the level of ambition of those targets towards 1.5 degrees. And we're now starting to see people exploring, okay, what does it look like beyond perhaps 10 years? And what's the journey look like to a net zero situation that's required by mid-century? The next challenge, and the one I think perhaps so far hasn't yet been really tested and is most important, is starting to make progress and starting to meet that curve. 
science-based target initiative have required companies from when they started to not just set a five to 15 year timeline for their science-based target, but also set interim targets. And some of our clients are now getting to the point where those interim targets are coming up, 2022, 2023, they need to demonstrate that they have made progress. Some companies will have made that progress and will have reduced. Some of them may not have made that progress yet. But we're starting to need companies to actually show they are making progress because those science-based target timelines are not that long. The curves are quite steep. Companies need to demonstrate that they are moving down that curve, which is a great thing. It suddenly moves a a real focus on all aspects of the business because all aspects of the business are being measured to say, are we making progress across our horizons? Are we making progress in our supply chain? Are we making progress in our property and our operations? Are we making progress in how our products are used in the marketplace? And of course, once you get the easier stuff done, then the more challenging and more innovative, more disruptive stuff that we said a few years ago, we hopefully will come along now needs to be enacted. I think the next few years, a a real focus on achieving implemented savings and reductions and not limited just to scope one, two, but actually looking along the whole value chain is going to become a real important part of what companies need to demonstrate and what stakeholders, whether it be customers, investors, or any other stakeholders, will want to hold them to and to say, how are you progressing? Let's see the results. I think you're right that the use of interim targets or the setting interim targets now is, is really interesting. And I wonder how much of that's down to so many consumer goods companies, of course, committed in 2010 to have zero deforestation by 2020, and none of them achieved it. And then partly because it certainly seems to many of us that it was because they didn't get the targets right along the, the route to zero deforestation was just simply not mapped out. So it does feel that there's a much greater mapping out now of interim targets to get towards to 2040, 2050 net zero targets. Let's think a bit about engaging with value chains then. What do you think are the key messages that companies need if they're using science-based targets? How do they communicate their use with their value chain? And are there particular incentives that can work with suppliers, do you think? I think the important thing is changing the dynamic and the communication relationship between the company and its supplier. Lots of companies have major suppliers, and some of them probably would call them perhaps even partners that they have a longer-term relationship with. Some of them maybe have less so and are more buying off a commodity marketplace or a short-term trading relationship. The importance of getting those reductions in the supply chains onto the agenda for those discussions and those meetings. And we're seeing it. We're seeing companies approaching us across all sectors saying, can you help us? We need to understand our missions. We need to set targets. We need to communicate what our plans are, what our strategy is around sustainability. And you ask the question, why are you coming to do this today in 2021? And often the answer is because one of our major customers is asking questions, you know, or our competitors are starting to make a noise in the marketplace and, our, and their customers are listening. So that really does make a big difference. And of course, it isn't always just about sharpening the pencil and making some small improvements. It may well be saying, we're not sure if your product is appropriate for our use in the future because there's an alternative that can deliver significant reduction or we need to move below where we think you can move to. And you know, some of the commodity markets that are areas of significant emissions, steel and aluminium and others, they're starting to see the emergence of differentiation in a commodity marketplace for green aluminium or green steel and other products. And those areas of supply that can deliver a lower impact solution, perhaps powered by renewable energy or or whatever, or can provide more recycled content, 
are wanting to now differentiate that in the marketplace and sell that perhaps at a premium because it can deliver a much lower embedded carbon footprint for the customers downstream. And we're seeing customers that use metals, as an example, starting to source cleaner solutions. And one of the answers might be to go to a supplier that can deliver a cleaner equivalent. But the other answer might be to say, we're going to stop using aluminium, steel, cement, whatever it might be, and we're going to use something different. We're going to redesign our product to make it lower emission by alternative materials, or we're going to use another material that allows us a much greater level of recyclability or something like that. So that all of those dynamics are really opening the commercial chats, the conversations, the relationships, the strategies around how you source raw materials, but also how you develop your products and choose materials that wasn't around just a few years ago. And I guess the beauty of a science-based target is that in those conversations, it enables the buyer to point to the science-based target and say, look, here's why we need to change our relationship, or here's why you need to supply us this commodity or this product differently. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's data, you know, there's companies out there with reports. There's a report that Polestar put out recently, maybe a year ago, showing the embedded emissions or the footprint, the materials that go into one of their vehicles. And I think they were comparing, a, I think I can't remember, it was internal combustion engine, Volvo, XC, 40 or something to a Polestar 2, I think it was something similar. And they show you the pie chart of the materials that are going in and the emissions related to those different elements. And as an example, aluminium plays a big, a big part and a growing part in vehicles. They can give the figure. If you've got in the marketplace a variety of carbon intensities of aluminium, ranging from small number, two, three, four kilograms per kilogram aluminium to 20 and plus, 20 and more, it's a huge variety. And if a quarter or a third of your product's footprint is aluminium, well, there's an obvious way that you can significantly reduce its footprint. And it's to be selective around where you source your raw materials. And also, of course, to look at recycling of the materials that go into it, because some of those materials are easier to recycle than others. Looking forward and taking into account all the things we've been discussing, do you think we're kidding ourselves that the Paris 1.5 Celsius pathway is achievable? It's a difficult one because we're seeing quite significant temperature change already, which makes people start to try and project. I think there's two parts to that question. One is, are we able to keep the temperature below 1.5? And the second one is, are we able to achieve the decarbonisation rates that the models say we need to achieve in the timelines or the carbon budgets, as they're sometimes referred to, to achieve that? I think the second one is probably easier to answer and maybe is easier for me to try and get my head around. And that is to say there's lots of technical solutions out there. And if there is the will and the coordination to make significant changes at pace, then there should be no reason why we cannot take a lot of the carbon emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions out of industries and sectors and solutions at a quick pace. And if we look at some of the changing expectations in markets, you know, it wasn't that many years ago when the idea that we would all be switching to fully electric vehicles in the 2020s would have been just seen as absurd, whereas now it seems to be perfectly achievable and it just requires a bit of coordination and the technology works. The idea that fossil fuel powered power stations would, once they're built, would then run for 30 years. Well, I don't think anybody would realistically expect that. And that's obviously starting to make people look at balance sheets and investments and say, have we backed the right horse here? The ability to move technology, to move sectors, to drive down emissions 
and to find financially competitive solutions that can offer a cleaner solution is there for pretty much all of the sectors that we, we might want to look at. As to whether that then is achieved is, of course, where things like COP26 need to deliver, but other things need to work. And sometimes it feels a little bit like we're making some progress and then somebody unearths a step back somewhere, which is frustrating. But as to whether we then achieve that, but then find the temperature rises higher than 1.5 degrees, I don't know the answer to that. But what I guess we do know is that if we make great progress quickly, we can mitigate against a lot worse situation. And hopefully we can see things stabilise at a position that we can manage to live with. I think in the last few months, and maybe even last couple of years, but certainly the weather issues that we've seen recently makes people realise just how problematic extreme weather can be. And maybe COVID shows us that maybe we're not as robust and capable of dealing with things as we perhaps thought we were. We're not as invincible as the teenage man thought it was two years ago. You know, certainly, are, as you said, there's a, and as I said right at the beginning, there are lots of exciting things potentially happening. So maybe the answer to my question is that perhaps we might not be kidding ourselves, but an awful lot has to happen for us to achieve the 1.5 Celsius pathway. There's a lot happening and there's a lot going to be coming up through the rest of the year at COP26 and elsewhere. But for now, Miles McCarthy, thanks very much for helping us plot our way through. Thank you very much. Coming up now is a conversation between Toby Webb and Peter Stanbury about Innovation Forum's research into resilience in smallholder supply chains. Toby references a longer version of this discussion and there's a link to this in the podcast description. I'm here with Dr. Peter Stanbury and we've just recorded a long version of this podcast about our work on smallholder agriculture and resilience. You can find that on your podcast channel or on the Innovation Forum website. This is a much shorter version where we're going to talk about the report we did last year briefly, the reaction we've had and what our research agenda is going forward on smallholder resilience and resilient rural communities. So Peter, welcome to the podcast. Tell us very briefly about the, the findings of the report we published at the end of last year, and then let's get into what the reaction's been, and then let's talk about where we go next. But let's just start with summary of what the report said and what you found. Okay. Well, hello, Toby. As always, a pleasure to speak with you. Briefly, the report was based on 85, 90 interviews, a very extensive literature survey, and was really trying to join the dots between knowledge in different areas of smallholder supply chain work. The basic problem being that it tends to be a very siloed discussion. So what we were trying to do is to share learnings between cotton, palm, cashew, you know, a number of different areas. And what we found was that some areas of that discussion are very well understood. So what happens, for example, at farm level is well understood. The challenges that smallholder farmers themselves face in agronomy, in terms of poverty and so on, that's a well understood set of issues. But actually, there are large other parts of the sustainability chain which are not well understood and where very little attention is paid. So, for example, cooperatives are seen as being almost uniformly a good thing, but we discovered that actually in many cases they can be very biased, that they don't necessarily open up equality at local level. There's very little attention paid to the onward supply chain between the farm and port. There's very little join-up between projects on the ground and what national governments in some of these countries are up to. There's a number of areas that need further attention. And what we're trying to do now is to apply those sort of global lessons to specific areas. We're developing a number of in-country pilots or laboratories where we're seeking to apply those lessons to generate real insights as to, as to how genuinely to make smallholder supply chains sustainable. For those of you who missed the report, our supporters 
the research coalition we put together for it were the Clinton Foundation, Colio ACP, Cotton Connect, Golden Agri Resources, GIZ, the German Development Agency, and Nestle. And the report is titled Building Resilient Smallholder Supply Chains, How to Enable Transformation for Farmers, Institutions, and Supply Chains. So a bold title. And let's go into a bit more detail about the response to it, Peter. I mean, we held some webinars and discussions afterwards. What are your memories and takeaways from what the feedback's been? And how are we using that to inform the next stage of our research in your mind? Well, the feedback has been very positive. I think there was a genuine appreciation of our trying to join the dots between different commodities. And I think uh, people working in a specific area, be that cocoa palm, whatever, were very interested to learn lessons from elsewhere. I think also it allowed people who have had perhaps a nagging feeling in the back of their mind that certain issues need greater attention. Those things were sort of surfaced in what we were able to write. I think that's sort of given us a steer to how we take these things forward. And in particular, I think in three areas. The first is this question of smallholder market access. One of the key problems facing smallholder farmers is that they get trapped in a cycle of poverty. If we could engineer a way in which they can have access to better markets for more of their product, rather than just the perhaps one or two cash crops that they already sell, then obviously that's going to have significant implications in terms of farmer welfare. The second issue is this question of resilient development, that so far, much of the efforts around sustainability have focused on trying to improve the processes of smallholder farming, rather than actually look at some slightly wider social and political questions of what does a resilient rural community actually look like? And is smallholder farming sustainable in long term? How do we start to unpack those questions? And then the third area is this question of carbon. Again, looking at it from a smallholder perspective, the discussion with smallholders around carbon and, and landscapes has so far been, don't cut down trees, preserve uh, sensitive habitats. Whereas actually, if you turn the debate the other way around and say, well, if farmers are able to ha see as a product carbon sequestration, then obviously that both addresses the growing issues about carbon that we're seeing globally, but also provides another source of income from farmers. And that I think you perhaps pick up now, Toby, on, on the work you've been doing on Scope 3. But it's a means that companies who've made very high profile global statements can actually start to drive that into positive strategy on the ground. I think the hope is that the interest, the justified and needed interest in, in climate change and scope through carbon emissions can lead to resources being applied in the supply chain, where for food companies, most of the carbon liability sits. In many cases, it's 60, 70, 80% for a lot of the, the big food businesses. So therefore, how do we use climate targets to drive social empowerment? And that's the next stage of our research. Our titles are getting longer <laughs> as the issues get more complex. We'll try not to sound too academic because this is actually all about business lessons and practical outcomes, not about how many angels can dance on the head of somebody's pin. So our latest research process, our coalition really, is titled Forest Positive Action and Community Resilience in smallholder farming landscapes. And that's where we're trying to join up this interest in CO2, who owns what carbon, how do we measure carbon, how do we verify carbon, what does carbon justice look like for smallholders in a way that works for companies and enhances livelihoods of communities? Because we know farmers need to diversify. We know they need technical assistance. We know they need incentives. These are all coming from different directions in some cases. And it's very important that the political economy of a community is aligned with the right kind of incentives. And it, that needs to be carefully studied. And that's one of the many facets we're looking at we, through a number of different projects around the world, Gujarat with Cotton Connect and Sumatra with Golden Agri Resources. We'll be adding up more partners soon. And then we can draw lessons from those whilst delivering some on the ground value 
for those partners who are supporting the research. So that's where we're headed. And we'd love, listener, if you could get in touch with us, tell us more, uh, tell us what you think about this. There's lots about this on the Innovation Forum website. Peter and I have done other podcasts about it. We did briefly toy with the idea of a sustainable commodities marketplace to, to help direct sourcing come alive. And we realized that was a good idea, but too narrow an approach because the carbon drivers are very important. So love to hear what you think about this. You can find more by looking at Innovation Forum's Innovation Accelerator page and my blog, sustainablesmartbusiness.com, which has much writing by Peter and I on this matter. So thanks for listening. Peter, thanks for your time. And we hope to hear from you soon on this. Thank you. That's all for this week. Don't forget to go to the Innovation Forum website for all the usual analysis and podcasts and to take advantage of the £150 discount on passes for the Future of Classics conference on the 11th to 13th of October, if you register by close on 27th of August. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.